my dad tells the story of his first encounter with the Bible. He was a young kid, and he found one at a garage sale for about 50 cents. The seller was so surprised to see a young kid interested in it that he gave it to him for a quarter. So he rushes home, he starts reading it, and he wants to find out what the big deal is with God and everything. And the first few chapters, they just blow him away. There's creation, the talking snake, a story of brother murdering brother. Chapter 5 of Genesis was a little slow with all those names, but hey, now we're back on track with the flood. And then immediately after that, more names, more genealogies and family history. So as any kid, and honestly as most of us would do, he starts flipping through the pages, and lo and behold, he discovers that there's a whole new part called the New Testament. And how does this part of the Bible begin? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So he tossed that Bible aside and didn't do anything with it for about another decade. It's called the greatest story ever told, but the life of Jesus has a pretty tedious start. Why is God so interested in giving us this list of over 30 names, half of which we can't even pronounce? Well, genealogies were incredibly important to the Jewish people, and still are. The promises that God gave to Abraham were for him and his descendants. Belonging to God's people meant belonging to a certain family tree. The promises of God are passed from one generation down to the next. And we can see this clearly throughout the book of Genesis, which has ten genealogies scattered throughout it. And each genealogy essentially moves the story forward from one big event to the next, from creation to Adam, from Adam to Noah, from Noah to Abraham, all the way down to Jacob and the twelve patriarchs of Israel. It communicates that these aren't just a series of random stories without any connection. It tells us that we're tracing God's plan to redeem mankind through a single family. And when Matthew begins his gospel, he wants us to understand that Jesus is the next big movement of God's plan. What's more than that, he wants us to understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises given to all those families. The genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 has a number of notable names, and each one has a story behind it. But Matthew wants our attention to be focused primarily on those very first names mentioned in verse 1, David and Abraham. Both of these men were given promises that Israel was still awaiting to see fulfilled. God had promised to Abraham in Genesis 12:3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Matthew is telling us that Jesus is the one through whom all blessings will flow. And we could look to passages like Galatians chapter 3, verses 7 through 8, where it's written, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. The blessings that God had in mind back in Genesis 12 are finding their fulfillment in the story of Jesus. God had also made a promise to David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 13, God promises that David will be the father of a dynasty that is established forever. And God says to him in 2 Samuel 7, 16, that your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Matthew wants us to know that the promised king, he's here. The son of David has come to claim his throne. And so Matthew has arranged this genealogy to highlight Abraham, David, and also the exile. 
In verse 17, we're told that all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. The exile was a traumatic time for Israel. They'd been in it for centuries at this point. Yes, they had returned to the land of Israel, and that was an end to the physical exile, but they were still very much in political and religious exile. They had been ruled over by pagan empires, Rome most recently, who had installed puppet kings like Herod, who had no ties to the family of David. The temple had been built, but God's presence had never filled it like it did with the tabernacle in Exodus 40:34, or like Solomon's temple in 1 Kings 8:10. But Matthew, he sees the end of the exile in sight. The exile lasted 14 generations until the Christ. And now that he's here, he's bringing that period of history to an end. The story of Jesus is the beginning of the end of God's plan of salvation. It's the beginning of blessings for all nations, the beginning of the kingdom of God, the beginning of God dwelling with his people all over again. And all of that is summed up in that genealogy of 30 plus names across 17 verses. What an incredible beginning for an incredible story. Now, as exciting as the opening verses are, when we know what we're looking for, most people are shocked about reading how Jesus was born. In Matthew 1.18, we're told that the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. The wording is clear that Mary was found pregnant after the betrothal, but before they came together, which is a euphemism for sex. Betrothals involved a contract between the groom and the bride's father, and it could be up to a year before the actual wedding. And local customs would dictate whether or not the couple would be allowed to be alone together or not. Galilee, where Mary and Joseph lived, they didn't allow that. And in just about every sense, this couple was married at this point. To break a proposal, the groom needed to write a certificate of divorce. If the groom died before the wedding, the bride was considered a widow. And although the wedding hadn't taken place at this point, Joseph was legally her husband. So you can imagine the scandal when it's discovered that Mary's pregnant. We've kind of been prepared for this ourselves with the genealogy. It contains the names of four women, each of whom had some sort of sexual scandal in their life. Tamar was almost burned alive after being accused of prostitution. Rahab was a prostitute. Ruth, while not clearly scandalous, uncovered the feet of Boaz, which is a euphemism for another body part lacking toes. And then we're reminded of the scandal with Bathsheba by not even naming her. Even hundreds of years later, we're reminded that David stole the wife of Uriah. And now we have a young betrothed woman who claims to be pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit. The genealogy has prepared us to expect God to work through something like this. But that doesn't mean that Joseph, her husband, was on the same page. But Joseph is called a just man. In verse 19, we're told that her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Joseph could have declared the matter publicly in front of a judge, disowned Mary, gotten his bride price back, and kept the dowry. But instead, we're told that Joseph was a just man and would have signed a document between at least two witnesses without making a spectacle out of it. Being a just man, he may have been unwilling to keep the dowry as well. 
And so even though he had reason to make her a public example, he decided not to slander Mary. And after God had told him in a dream not to fear taking her as his wife, he did so. He knew that she was righteous, but not everyone else did. So he took on the public shame and reputation of not being able to wait until the wedding day. Or even worse, that he was raising a kid that some other man had made. God didn't only have Mary in mind when thinking of who Jesus' earthly family would be. Joseph would have been a fitting father. Joseph was willing to go through all of this because of what he was told in verses 21 through 23. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus is the answer to the hope of Israel. He is God returning to be with his people, to forgive them of their sins so that we can draw near to God. As in Isaiah, a child was given as a sign of hope, now Jesus is given so that we can claim that God is with us.